Do you realize that if you live an average lifetime, you will sleep 20 years, and in that 20 years, you'll have some 300,000 dreams. But I'm here to tell you that none of those dreams will be as powerful or historic in nature as the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. No wonder he so desperately wanted an answer. So let's pick up the story now where Daniel is facing off with Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, in chapter 2, verses 14 and following. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I am so impressed with Daniel and his approach to a delicate and deadly situation. Me? I would have overreacted. The, the, the commander of the guard ends up at my front door. I'm going to say, of all the unreasonable, unrealistic, irrational, res, ridiculous things to do, just kill us because we can't answer a dream? I mean, who's this guy I think he is, king of the world? And about that time, the king's sword would have cut right through me, and that would have been the last I ever heard. But Daniel, Daniel didn't overreact. He responded reasonably. Now, back in chapter 1, I want to remind you that the Bible says that Daniel was well-respected and liked among the king's officials. I think Daniel had celebrity looks with Abraham Lincoln people skills. He had the best of both worlds, and he knew that to deal with harsh and unrealistic people, you need to have expert people skills. And so there's some practical wisdom here that's worth reviewing and repeating in our own lives as we take a look at what Daniel did. Now, your first response when a guy's standing there with his sword drawn is pretty critical. And the Bible says that Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact. Did you notice that when we went through the first time? He spoke with wisdom and tact. Let, let's, let me talk about wisdom for just a moment. You've read frequently in the book of Proverbs the word wisdom if you're reading through Proverbs. And by the way, let, let me suggest you do something. When you come to the word wisdom as you're reading through Proverbs, substitute the name Jesus for it. It gives it a new twist, and, it, and it's really interesting how that plays out. Um, wisdom, intellect, and knowledge are oftentimes equated, but they are not the same. Sometimes people use them interchangeably in conversation. They are not the same. They are connected, yes, but not equals. Now, we don't have the time to plumb the depths of these three terms, but let me, just for the sake of our conversation today, distinguish them like this. Intelligence is the capacity to learn. Knowledge is the information that we learn. Wisdom is the ability to apply what we learn to everyday life. Wisdom is making the right and smartest choice. And I'm convinced that true wisdom only comes from one source and that's from God himself. To a degree, wisdom acts much like common sense. I suspect you know people who are very book smart, 
but when it comes to common sense, they have little application for their great knowledge. Daniel excelled in all three, intellect, knowledge, and wisdom, but when it came to the harsh, tough moments of life, it was his wisdom that got him through the difficult times. By the way, when's the last time you prayed for wisdom? You know, it is one of the few things that God invites us to ask for in prayer. In the book of James, we are reminded that God says, ask me for wisdom and I will give it to you. God wants to give wisdom. And I'm thinking, you know, of all the things that we request, of all the things that we put into our prayers, the one that we leave out may be the greatest gift of all. I, when's the last time you said, God, help me be wise? Because if you have God's wisdom, it will make the rest of the choices and decisions of your life much easier. So I'm suggesting take God up on his invitation, pray for wisdom. Secondly, tact is the ability to know what needs to be said as well as when and how to say it. In the list of job frustrations that you all put together before this sermon series started, there was a recurring theme of being held responsible for other people's mistakes or being yelled at when you, when you were, had no control over the situation. And I think we all deal with, at some point in time, people who have no wisdom and have absolutely no tact or diplomacy when it comes to moments like that. When, when the king's commander shows up at Daniel's door, Daniel knows immediately this is not his fault. We, on the other hand, would lash out at the guy who shows up with the sword, but Daniel just, he knows he's just the messenger. He's just carrying out orders. He knows the problem lies with the king. Have you ever seen a frustrated customer beating up on verbally, yelling at the person that's behind the counter that you know doesn't have this solution for the problem, but they just unleash on the first person that's available? That's not wise, and that's certainly not diplomatic and certainly not tactful, and I'm here to tell you, you won't get very far when you act that way. If you will invest in some tact, it will get you farther down the road. Knowledge without wisdom, truth without tact never has a happy ending. So we'd, we would do well to gain some insight in this matter of common sense tact. Be tactful with everyone. Now, now I'm telling you, tact requires a bit of time. Before you speak, you have to think. Before you react, you have to guard your decisions. But if you're tactful up front, it will save you a whole lot more time at the back end of the story when we have to clean up so many broken pieces and so many messes when we aren't tactful. Here's some handy anonymous quotes on tact that I think are, are worth remembering. Tact is the rare ability to keep silent while two friends are arguing and you know they're both wrong. Tact is the ability to make a person see the lightning without feeling the bolt. Tact is the ability to stand on your own two feet without stepping on somebody else's toes. Tact is thinking twice before saying nothing. People with tact have less to retract. Use a little bit of tact in your life, whether you're the boss, whether you're the employee, the spouse, the friend, or the classmate, Tact is vital to preserving your relationships. Now, how did Daniel use his wisdom and tact in such a common sense way? Okay, I want you to just see something. This is just, really is common sense stuff, but stuff that we so oftentimes forget. Look at what Daniel did. When, when the 
commander of the guard shows up at the door. Daniel doesn't jump to some conclu conclusion. He doesn't act with indignation. He asks a very important question. He said, how is it that the king came to such a harsh decree? What happened that prompted the king to act this way? In other words, I realize I'm going to die. I'd like to know what the reason for my death is. Now, that's not accusing Arioch of being bad or the king of being bad. It's just saying, I'd like an explanation. I'd like to have all the pieces of the puzzle in place before I draw a conclusion or I react and respond. Boy, how many times in my life would I have been saved great grief had I gotten all the pieces of the puzzle in place before I responded in a way that was inappropriate? Something else I noticed in Daniel is that when he went to the king to ask for more time, he didn't talk to the king about how foolish this command was. He didn't try to talk the king out of his decree. He didn't go in and say, your majesty, do you realize how, how impossible what you've asked is? And do you realize how unreasonable taking our lives is? He didn't do anything like that. He just said, your majesty, I know you'd like an answer to your dream. I'd like could you give me just a little more time? And the king granted him more time because really what the king wanted more than anything was an answer to the dilemma of his dream. He was, he was distressed by the dream. He wanted to know. And if Daniel had a chance of getting the answer with a little more time, then the king lost nothing. Most of all, the king didn't lose face. He didn't rescind his decree. He didn't change his mind. He just said, okay, I can give you a little more time if that'll help. You see, when you're in a tough situation with a boss or, or an employee or a fellow coworker or somebody else, don't go in with, with guns blazing. Don't go in and say, do you realize how wrong you were in what you ask of us? Go in with some kind of a common sense, tactful approach that asks for maybe more time to solve the problem. Give people the opportunity to save face and you'll get much farther in what you do. And Daniel did not shoulder the responsibility alone. Uh, this is one of the things that I think about our culture is that sometimes when we have a problem, we, we just get too private with it. And we say, I will handle this. This is my problem. I will solve it. I will bear the burden of it. I will shoulder the blame. And, and we think there's something important and powerful about shouldering all the responsibility ourselves. Now, if you've done something wrong, yeah, take the responsibility for it. But I'm talking about when you're trying to work yourself out of a situation or a problem, you need others to come around you who have good ideas, who may think of something that you don't think of. When, when you try to solve problems alone, you will inevitably overlook maybe the best possible answer. No one has all the best thoughts. No one has all the creative ideas. No one has all of the possible solutions. But the more people you gather around you, the better solution you can come up with. No wonder Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. There is nothing biblical about trying to just handle it all on your own. The biblical approach is have those people around you that can help you conquer the problem. That's why God gave us the church. Folks, God could have redeemed us at the cross. He could have given us the message of salvation and just said, good luck once you become a Christian, making it through the rest of your life until the very end. Hope you are faithful. But God gave us the church 
so that we would have one another to help us get through the difficult times. Have you noticed when, when the Bible talks about the church, the descriptive terms it uses, it talks about the church being a body. It talks about the church being a bride. It talks about the church being a family. It talks about the church being an army. All of those have connectedness in them. A bride is connected to the groom. Family members are connected to one another. Uh, your body, the organs of your body are connected to work and, and perform flawlessly together. An army has one goal and they work toward that one goal of achieving the victory in battle. God's word defines for us what the purpose of the church is. It is to help us in those tough moments of life. So don't go it alone. Gather around yourself those who can help you survive. And more important than the wisdom of the attack, Daniel knew that his only answer to the crisis was to be found in prayer. I don't know when they started praying. I'm assuming that as soon as he got home and he told the three, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that they started praying. But the answer didn't come until the middle of the night. Can I remind you that sometimes when you're praying and you're earnest and you aren't getting the answer that that you are waiting for God to respond, don't give up because sometimes God waits till the darkest hours before he gives you the light of his answer. If you knew tonight was your last night on earth, how would you spend it? Would you spend it partying? Would you ask friends to gather and mourn with you because you were dying in the morning? Would you crawl off into some corner, dark corner by yourself and just wait for the inevitable? Or would you spend it praying? Like Daniel. I'm not suggesting that if you spend a night in prayer that God will always give you the answer that's victorious, but I will suggest that when we pray in the tough moments of our life that the answer God gives will be the best answer possible. Even if it's not what we're looking for or what we think we need, God's answer is always best. Prayer is not the emergency ripcord when everything else has failed. Prayer is the parachute itself. I like this quote, don't expect a $1,000 answer to a 10-cent prayer. So when you pray, pray earnestly, trusting God for the right answer. In the midst of the unrealistic demands that you face, how will you respond? To suggest that Daniel and his friends were in hot water is an understatement. I mean, when your life is on the line, that's in hot water. But look what they did with their hot water. I want you to consider a couple things this morning. Now, help me out here, all right? What have I got in my hand? Potato, that is right. This is, this is not a hard test, all right? The, this, the, the score, there's no score to keep on this, all right? A potato, when, when it comes to vegetables, a potato is one of the strongest and firmest. I can squeeze that potato with all of my might. I cannot dent it. I cannot reshape it. There is nothing. It's just solid and firm. But you take a potato like that and you drop it into boiling water and what happens to the potato? Gets soft, doesn't it? You boil it long enough and it's not even suitable for mashed potatoes. It just kind of disintegrates in the water and is gone. This is an egg, yeah. An egg starts off being flexible and fluid. Do you realize how many things eggs are used in and used for? It's, it's incredible. And, and what you can do with an egg, you can scramble it, you can fry it, you can bake it, you can casserole it. It's used in cookies, it's used in cakes, it's used in all kinds of things until you drop it in the hot water. And then what happens to the egg? It gets hard, it gets dry, it's 
tough. It's no longer flexible. As a matter of fact, the only thing you can do with an egg at that point in time is devil it, which I think is kind of an appropriate term for, for what happens to the egg, all right? So it loses all of its, its flexibility at that point in time. The water changes the egg. The water changes the potato. Now tell me what this is. It's a tea bag. So you drop a tea bag in a pot of boiling water, and what happens? You get tea, all right? The hot water passes through the tea bag, and instead of the water changing the tea bag, the tea bag changes the water. You add a little bit of sugar, you add a little slice of lemon, and you've got a really good treat, iced or hot. Either way, it's something good. Now, here's the question. In the hot water of adversity, when the tough times hit, what best describes you? You start into it firm and strong and, and capable, and you end up being nothing but mush? Or do you start with a fluid flexibility where you can do all kinds of things, but through the tough times you become hardened and dry and bitter of spirit and you carry this grudge that the devil himself infuses in you? Or do you take the tough times that come into your life and like the tea bag, you flavor the circumstance instead of the circumstance flavoring you? You see, it's your choice, really. I look at Daniel and his friends, and, and they didn't let the circumstances change them. They changed the circumstances. When you're dealing with tough times, you make sure that the tough times don't change who you are, that you, as God's child, change the circumstances so that God can work through them in powerful ways. And the part that we often forget, Daniel didn't. When he got the answer, he didn't just rush off to the king and say, I know, I know, I know. He stopped and prayed first. It's a beautiful prayer. Verse 19 and following, it says, Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of, the, of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness, and the light dwells in him I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power, and you have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. I don't know about you, but I struggle that when I pray and God gives the answer, I often forget to say thank you. Asking God and thanking God are equal in importance. Sometimes prayer is a request form, sometimes it's a thank you note, but both are vital. And here Daniel's life hangs in the balance, and before he goes to the king with the answer, he stops to say thank you. There's a lesson for us in that. Pray thankfully, not just requesting things. And given the excitement, you could have imagined Daniel running home and saying, I've got the answer, but he didn't do that either. Verse 25 says, Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Yes, sir, I am, Daniel said. It's what you'd expect him to say, isn't it? But that's not what he said. Daniel, look at his reply. He says, no man, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. What a great response. 
Daniel doesn't even enter into the picture. He doesn't even say, God told me the answer, and now I'm going to tell the king. He says, King, God has revealed to you what the future holds. Daniel takes himself completely out of this, always gives the credit to God, keeps perspective on himself, and approaches the whole situation humbly. Wouldn't you like to hire a person like Daniel? Wouldn't you like to have that person with that kind of attitude working for you? Wouldn't you like to have a boss who treated his or her employees like that? You see, there is something incredibly special about the person who can keep a proper perspective on himself or herself in light of things that will lead to glory. Always give God the credit. Well, very, very quickly and lastly, there is prophetic wisdom worth remembering here. The question is, what was the dream? Well, it was a picture. We want our, our artist rendition of the picture here. It was the picture of a statue. As you can see there in that artist rendering, that the, um, that the head was gold, the chest was silver, the thighs were uh, bronze, and the legs were iron, and the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And Daniel goes on to explain to the king that what God has revealed to him is the history that is ahead of him yet. That this statue represents four great kingdoms of the world. He said the first one, king, is your kingdom of Babylon. And, and while Babylon had been a great power, it had never been, been as majestic and powerful as it was under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he is represented by the head of gold. Sixty years later, the Medes and Persians would capture Babylon and the land of Babylonia, and, and they then would take over. They were the silver empire. And notice how it goes down, gold to silver to bronze to iron to iron and clay, each one a little less in its greatness. And then uh, about 200 years after the Medes and Persians, the Greeks conquered the world under the leadership of Alexander the Great, and after the Greeks were the world power, then came the Romans who ruled like like an iron fist, especially in their early days, thus the legs of iron. Rome crushed and broke all preceding empires and became a great empire. But even Rome, because of division and internal weakness, described as the clay mixed with the iron, even the Roman Empire would eventually deteriorate and grow weak. I don't think that it's the statue that concerned the king, because the other part of the dream is what startled him. In chapter 2, verse 44, it says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not with human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. And the interpretation is trustworthy. What scared the king was this rock that was carved out of the mountainside that came tumbling down the mountain and destroyed the statue. And that, God says, is my kingdom. Now, folks, I, I, here's, here's what I want you to remember and take home with you from, from the dream. I don't know how you feel, but if, if I read the paper, if I watch the news, if I scroll online through all different kinds of news sources, and I start reading about the things that are happening around the world. It, it can be depressing. I don't know about you, but I can come away thinking, where, where are we headed? 
Nations claim this or that or the other. Tyrants rise and, and make boastful ad admonishments about what they're going to do. And I think, what are the next 25, 30, 50 years going to bring in this world? And then I remember, kingdoms and nations have come and gone. Rulers have risen and fallen. But there is one kingdom that will endure forever. The kingdom of God, His church. It transcends time and generations and places and cultures and countries. This is the kingdom that will last forever. And no matter what happens in the world, when you're in the kingdom of God, you're good to go.